0: I wanted to mention something to kind of cat, uh, to kind of um, uh, in connection with uh, with uh, Matthew's announcement about the Star Spangled Celebration? We've been doing this for several years now. One of the ways that Miriam helped, and we're going to need somebody to take her place because she won't be here, is uh, we've had we've, we've uh, last couple of years we've had uh, one or two people who have dressed up in, let say like uh, Betsy Ross or. Somebody from the colonial period, if you're interested in doing that, either from the, as a guy or as a girl, we have a costume for, one, for both, could really use your help. Doesn't matter how old you are how young you are. Well, you can't be too young because then costume won't fit. But um, anyway, we could use some help with that. But well, we're continuing this morning with our, our study through Psalm 119. Uh, today we're looking at the 16th stanza. stanza this is verses 121 to 128. And it's very clear to anyone who reads Psalm 119 that this psalmist is in a very difficult situation, very challenging situation. He speaks of wicked people, evil people, people that he describes as being proud and arrogant, deceitful. They're all around him. Some of them are even in positions of authority, and so they use that authority to persecute him for his faith. It's also clear to anyone who reads this psalm that the psalmist is completely dedicated to the Lord. Uh, In spite of all the opposition that he's getting to his faith in the culture that he lives, he is not going to compromise what he knows is true. So we see him regularly going to the Lord in prayer, asking for help. We see him giving much attention to the importance of the scriptures. We'll see that again today. He regularly asks for more insight into god's commandments he asked for the lord to help him to actually be consistent in walking out what those commandments teach him and so we just see on a regular basis these kind of things really in many ways psalm 19 is, is as good a manual as what it means for a christian to live in a hostile culture as anything we have in the word of god um, it's very thorough it's repetitive where it needs to be repetitive things that we need to hear over and over because they're so important. Um, it also makes it clear there's going to be times we're going to be really discouraged, really disheartened over things. The psalmist was that way. On the other hand, there's going to be times where God revives our heart and really gives us an encouragement. And so that's going to help us So we see that too illustrated in this psalm. One of the key verses in the psalm, I think, is 105 that we looked at a few weeks ago which says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, that's a statement of fact, really, about the importance of the scriptures, just giving that kind of light as an illustration. One thing it tells us is that the word of God really is like a, is a light, it's like a floodlight, so to speak, that helps us to see the big picture of things. I would uh, I describe that as having a Christian worldview that really determines everything you see. It really ties into the song we sing, uh, be thou my vision. It's kind of helping us to see things in the big picture kind of way. But his word is also a lamp to our feet, helps us in very specific decisions, very specific choices that we're challenged with. We need the word of God in both those ways. And all this is really important, especially because we live in a world that truly is full of moral darkness. But it's tricky because the moral darkness is dressed up to be fun to be liberating, to be fulfilling, even to be beautiful. Kind of like, I, I think, the, of the city of Vanity Fair and uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Very dressed up. But the reality is it will destroy your life. Because in reality, it's truly ugly from God's perspective. Well, in that kind of world, in that kind of world we just desperately need Light. In a world where darkness is advertised and protected and encouraged, we need the light of the Word of God. In fact, as we saw last week, the Word of God even leads us to have a holy hatred for what is evil. That sounds very odd to our ears, I know, but it's something the Word of God, I think, makes clear to us, and it's actually going to come up in these verses again today. So, verses uh, 121 to 128, here's what they say. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. The psalmist describes himself as God's servant three times in this stanza. So that's a key thought that we'll give some attention to. He also speaks much of the need for God's servants to know and value the scriptures. We're going to look at these verses in three sections. First, we'll look at verses 121 and 122. Uh, they talk about how God's servant is to live righteously and trust him for help. Second, verses 123 through 125, we see how God's servants are in covenant with him. So we can trust him then for deliverance, for mercy, and for greater understanding. And third, in verses 126 to 128, we see how God's servants have a zeal For God's reputation. They want to see his reputation be upheld and see his word rightly esteemed. So, our first main point is this As God's servant, believers have the responsibility to live righteously and the privilege of trusting their Lord to come to their aid. Being in the position of a servant is generally not seen as a good thing, it's often seen as being on the low end of the totem pole most people don't have as their great ambition to be a servant. But in God's vocabulary, it's a good thing. If you are God's servant, then you are one who has great dignity in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. So what is generally looked down on in our world at large is considered a position of great honor in God's kingdom. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for servant that's used here is, uh, is also used to describe in the, he- in, in the Old Testament household servants. It's used to describe the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. The same word is also used to describe Abraham. This word is used to describe Moses and even the Messiah. As you might recall, one of the main terms that the prophet Isaiah used To speak of the coming Messiah was the suffering servant. And the psalmist here describes himself as a servant of God. And it's accurate to say really that all true believers are really God's servants. And there's a dignity in being God's servant. First off, because of who we're serving, we are serving the eternal triune God. And as his servants, we also belong to him. He is our God. We are his people. I mean, that's the greatest privilege we could possibly have. There's a couple of things in these first two verses that I want to take note of. One is this each believer has a personal intimacy, a personal intimacy with the Lord, and have committed to live righteously so as to honor him. To be God's servant is described in verse 122 as to be completely dependent on him. By his grace, of course, we have come to see how sinful and weak we really are. By his grace, we have been able been enabled to put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So we are dependent on him, yes, for our physical life. We're also dependent on him for our spiritual life. And if the Lord did not provide for our salvation, we would be eternally damned. So being his servant is a truly great privilege, a privilege that's beyond any other. We also see in these verses that having this gracious privilege of being God's servant means that we have responsibilities of a servant. In verse 21, the psalmist says to the Lord in prayer, I've done justice and righteousness. Well, how does he know what is just and right? Well, he got it from the Lord. God's commandments are very clear on what it means to be just and right. For example, his law condemns idolatry. His law condemns taking the Lord's name in vain. His law condemns murder, sexual morality, of all, immorality of all kinds, theft. It condemns being bearing false witness. His law also calls us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. It calls us to keep his day holy, the Sabbath day holy. It calls us to honor the sanctity of human life. It calls us to reject covetousness and learn to be content. So the psalmist says he has sought to honor God's laws, and that tells us, therefore, that tells us what is just and right. He's not claiming perfection. He knows, we know that's true, because he continues to ask for greater understanding of God's statutes. He knows he has lots of room to grow. But be that as may, he has lived as a law-abiding citizen. He has been a good neighbor. And God has given all of his servants the obligation then to honor him by living lives that are just and right. Well, being God's servant leads the psalmist to make a request of the Lord. Let me read 121 and 122 again. I've done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. So, from these verses, we further see the next point. The Lord has fully paid the debt, the debt each of his servants owe, so they have the privilege of asking him to intervene when they find themselves being treated unjustly. Verse 122, the psalmist asked the Lord to be surety for your servant for good. The idea of being surety is the idea of, speaks of a debt being paid. It speaks of someone standing in the place of another and furnishing a guarantee for them. Well, this is a reminder to us that we all need the Lord to be surety for us. I mean, we all have a debt of sin that we can never repay. Any record of justice and righteousness that we may have is never good enough for what God requires. It never measures up. We can never have a right relationship with God based on the good things that we have done. Even our best works fall short. But as you know, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was perfectly righteous in all that he did. He then died as a substitute for sinners. He paid that unpayable debt that we all owe to our Creator. So if you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then he has become surety for you. And as a result, you have become his servant. So in light of these truths, every believer has the privilege of going to the Lord in prayer and asking him for help. As his servant, we can be certain that he's going to hear those prayers. The psalmist is coming to the Lord because people are oppressing him. They even He speaks of them as being arrogant, of like boasting in their pride. The idea of oppression here is connected with people in authority abusing that authority. They are burdening, trampling, and crushing those who are under them. The psalmist comes to the Lord for help. He he has become a a trusted servant of the Lord. He comes as one for whom the Lord has paid his debt of sin, his surety. He comes as one who has sought to honor the Lord with the way he lives in righteousness and justice. In other words, this man really, really hasn't done anything wrong. To the contrary, he has done right according to God's law. He's clearly being mistreated by people who are enemies of God. So as God's servant, he asked the Lord, don't leave me to my oppressors. He asked the Lord that these arrogant men would not be allowed to continue to oppress him. He asked the Lord that he would do good to him. So he's asked the Lord to put himself in between the psalmist and those who are his enemies, to be his protector, to be his helper. Well, in verse 121, the psalmist is asking God to help him in indirect ways, what we might call providential ways. He says, don't leave me to my oppressor. Providentially hinder these people's schemes from coming to fruition like they're planning. In verse 122, the psalmist is asking for a more direct intervention. He wants the Lord to personally get in the way and stop these arrogant men from what they're doing. So he realizes one way or another, if he gets relief from the evil actions of these oppressors, then it's God who's going to bring that about. He's the one who's going to bring that relief. But we have the same confidence before God because if Jesus Christ, like we said, is your Lord and Savior, then you are God's servant. And you can bring your greatest needs to, hit to him, to help you, to hear your prayers. And as your, uh, you as his servant, he is your God, he will come to your aid. Well, the psalmist elaborates more fully on the blessings of being God's servant. So look again at verses 123 to 125. He says, my eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. So, our second main point is this. As God's servant, believers are in covenant with him so they can trust him for deliverance, for mercy, and for understanding of his word. Well, in verse 123, he speaks of God's salvation. In verse 124, he speaks of God's loving kindness, which is a word connected with covenant mercy. In verse 125, the psalmist says, I am your servant. Well, that indicates the covenantal truth of you are my God, I am your servant. So believers are in a binding covenant relationship with God. The covenants of promise of the Old Testament are these. We have the covenant with Noah. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, and then the new covenant, of course, is promised in the Old Testament to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes. Each of these covenants are summed up with a phrase that you find in Ephesians 2.12, which describes them as the covenants of promise. The promise has to do with the Messiah because they are all connected with the promise of the Messiah in some fashion. For example... The covenant with Noah promised that creation itself would be preserved for the Messiah to come to earth and accomplish his work on the earth. The covenant made with Abraham made it clear that the Messiah would come through Abraham's descendants. In other words, he would come through the people of Israel. The covenant made with Moses gave laws that pointed to the need of a blood sacrifice offered by priest in order to take away sins. The covenant with David makes it clear that the Messiah would be in the line of David and would, be, would have an eternal kingdom that he ruled over as the king. And then the new covenant accomplishes that redemption in time when it fulfills all those types, all those promises that were made in the covenants of promise. Now for us, the covenants of promise have been fulfilled. In the time of the psalmist, they were still in the time of the promises being made. But faith in the promised Messiah to come is the same as the faith in the Messiah who has already come. So this one, this psalmist, was in covenant with God through his faith and those promises, promises of the Messiah. And it's a binding covenant that cannot be broken. Well, there's three aspects of being in covenant with God as one of his servants that are referred to in these verses that we're looking at. First is this. The Lord has so transformed the desires, so transformed the desires of his servants that they have a longing for and a confidence in him as their deliverer. Verse 123 says, My eyes fail with longing for your salvation, for your righteous word. One thing this tells us is that the psalmist has been given just a deep heart desire to want to know the Lord and to want to please him. This goes beyond just somebody who says, my conscience is bothering me because I've done some bad things. I want to kind of soothe my conscience. This is somebody who's going beyond that. This is somebody whose heart has been transformed. He loves the Lord. He has a desire to please him. And so you get that expression as he, as he speaks of this deep longing that he has. Now, specifically, we see that his longing has to do with salvation. This verse, of course, follows immediately after 122, where the psalmist spoke of the Lord being his surety, the one who would fully pay his debt. So this statement in 123 is probably also connected with the salvation that only God can provide by being the surety, the payment for our debt. And this confidence that the psalmist had in the Lord as his salvation means that he also trusts him to be his deliverer. He knows he's the kind of God who delivers as far as salvation is concerned, but also as far as his circumstances are concerned. So he's actually able to trust him and come to him as one that he knows will hear his request and grant him the deliverance that he needs. The second blessing from uh, being in covenant with God is this. God's servants are well aware of their sin and weakness, so they regularly come to him for mercy, for mercy. In verse 124, the psalmist is asking, Lord, deal with your loving kindness according to, uh, deal with your servant according to your loving kindness. The word loving kindness can also be translated mercy. It's a uh, well-known common Hebrew word, hesed, which is generally connected with uh, mercy that comes because of a covenant. It's God's covenant mercy. It's a faithfulness that can be expected and and, and asked for and trusted in because the person is in covenant with God. No one is in covenant with God because they're good. No one is in covenant with God because they deserve it. Nobody deserves it. We're in covenant with God through Jesus Christ by God's loving kindness, by his mercy, so if you're a Christian, you are already well aware that you have sin in your life. We all know that. Holy Spirit convicts you, convicts me on a regular basis of those of that issue. It's also interesting to remember that at the beginning of this stanza, the psalmist said he had done what was just and what was righteous. But here he's looking for covenant mercy. So this is an admission that his own acts of justice and righteousness We're not perfectly done. He knows they're not perfectly done. So he's asking God to deal with him not according to those works of justice and righteousness, but deal with me according to your mercy. That's that's how I'm coming to you, that you would deal with me according to your mercy. That's a covenant blessing that we have. The third blessing of the covenant mentioned is this. God's servants have been given a desire for his word and realize how vital it is that they understand it well. That they understand it well. This blessing given to God's covenant servant is woven all through these verses. Verse one twenty-three, the psalmist says the psalmist's eyes are not only longing for God's salvation for His deliverance, but also longing for His righteous word. So God had given him a deep love for the righteous word of God. In verse 124, he not only asks for God to deal with him according to God's loving kindness, but he also says, and teach me your statutes. So part of God's covenant mercy to his people is to teach us what his word says, what it means. In fact, really, the more we see his mercy, the more we end up understanding what his word says and what it actually means. That's a big part of that. Well then in verse 125 we see this desire once again very clearly. He says, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. So for the third time in this stanza, the psalmist identifies himself as God's servant. That gives him the standing that he needs to be able and the freedom to be able to ask God to make request of God. He asks once more for greater understanding. He has such a heart for the word of God that he wants to really and truly know God's testimonies well. He wants to understand what they really mean. He wants to understand how they apply in his life. He's in a culture full of darkness of all sorts. He's being actively oppressed and persecuted by proud, evil men. And the main thing he wants in that context is, I need to know your word better. That's what I really need. George Zemeck, a, uh, who one of, one of the commentators that I read, he made this comment here. He says, it is only that kind of personal knowledge of the God of the Word mediated through the Word of God that can provide sufficient, sufficient resources for the pressures and pains, and in the case of the psalmist, the persecution of life in the real world. So he knows his best way to know the God of the word is to know the word of God. No matter what pressures he is facing in life, he knows the resources he needs are in the scriptures. Does that apply to us too? When we think through the things that are really bothering us at this time, Do we really believe the scriptures are a sufficient resource for us? I don't know about you, but I can't always say that I think that way. I don't always do that. So is the Lord and his word really enough to give help, to give guidance? I believe it is. I believe it truly is a sufficient resource. And he will use it in various ways and through many different people and so forth. But it's just, a, it's just a real blessing to us as servants of God to know that he's given us the sufficient resource in his word. Now, our last main point comes from verses 126 to 128, which say, It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So from these verses, we see our third main point, which is as God's servants, believers have a zeal, a zeal for God's reputation to be upheld and for his word to be rightly esteemed. Now, we need to realize all this follows from what's been said before. It follows from the fact that he has made clear his identity is this, I'm God's servant. And that's the key to everything that's going on in my life and my interaction with my culture around me. He's made it clear that there are evil things going on in his culture. He's made it clear that even though he's living in a way that honors the Lord and his law, he still finds himself being oppressed. He's made it clear that God's word is key. It is key to understanding what's truly right and wrong. It's also key in giving the psalmist the resources he needs as God's servant to be able to persevere in the situation that he's in. All this tells us, That the relationship that the psalmist has with the Lord is the most important relationship in his life. Being God's servant affects everything about him. So with those things in mind, we see this next point. God's servants want to see him intervene. They want to see him intervene when his law is so blatantly rejected. The psalmist says very emphatically in verse 126, it's time for the Lord to act. Why would he say that? Well, he follows it up. Because they've broken your law. That's why. It's not because I'm fed up. It's because they they keep breaking your law. It's time for you to act. Again, this is being prayed out of a zeal for God's glory, not because he's personally frustrated. It's his zeal for God's glory. He sees people just blatantly, defiantly breaking God's law. It's not out of ignorance; it's out of out and out rebellion to God. And the more clearly God's servant understands the truths of God's word, the more zeal he has to see God's to see God glorified. And that glory, God's glory, includes acting in judgment on those who stubbornly insist on acting in open rebellion to him. So the psalmist calls on the Lord to act. I read just this past week about five Christians who were arrested in North Korea because they gathered in a farmhouse to worship On April 30th, which is the Sunday we celebrate our 30-year anniversary of being able to openly and publicly, freely worship, well, they're arrested because five of them gathered in a farmhouse on that same day to worship. In North Korea, Christians are either put in a labor camp or they're killed. And from what I've read, these five Christians have all equally refused to recant their faith. They have all said this, all for Jesus, even in death. that is truly ungodly oppression directed toward people who have done things that were right and just. So I say too, Lord, for the glory of your name, I ask you would act on behalf of these people and multiply thousands of others who are in similar situations around the world. Well, out of the psalmist's zeal for the Lord and for his word, he says this in verse 127, quite an amazing verse. He says, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. So this verse tells us God's servants love his commandments more than a miser, more than a miser loves his gold. The verse begins with the word, therefore, because the psalmist is making a contrast and drawing a conclusion. In contrast with those who blatantly break God's law, the Lord has given the psalmist a great love for his law. And that's not, it's not something to apologize for. Because the arrogant ones are mocking it. Instead, this is, there's an even greater recognition of the treasure he has in God's word. And I got the idea of a miser from Charles Bridges. He says this image, he said he thinks there's an image of a miser here that we need to think about. Believers, in other words, are to love and value the commandments of gold, The commandments of God as a miser loves and values his gold. J.R.R. Tolkien has given us a helpful illustration of this. In Middle-earth, dwarves are those who live in deep mines under the earth. They mine for gold, silver, precious gems, so forth. They then take these valuables and make beautiful bracelets, necklaces, goblets, I mean, just all kinds of plates, all kinds of just beautiful things that they make out of this gold, silver, precious jewels that they have mined in the, kind of the, the depths of the earth. Well, in Middle Earth, we also know that dragons love these kind of treasures. They love gold and silver and precious gems. Well, in The Hobbit, the book The Hobbit, We are told of how Smog, the great fire-breathing dragon, attacked the dwarves, stole all their treasure. He took it to his own lair, and as a miser, he loved, dearly loved that stolen treasure. Mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of these precious jewels and gold and silver that he just lived in. He examined each piece. Again, multiplied thousands, maybe even in the millions of pieces are represented here. He knew them all. His heart, and his, it, 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 they were in his heart. He treasured every piece of this. He loved to count it and watch over it carefully. He hides it. He guards it. It's the most important thing in his life. So he protects it with his life. That's how we're supposed to be with the commandments of God. We should love each verse, each passage, each doctrine, as if it were a valuable treasure. To look at it closely, each word, each phrase, Just each context, each story, each aspect of the Scripture is like a gold nugget that a miser says, that's mine, and I'm going to examine it, and I'm going to love it. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to value this treasure, every piece of it. Continuing to ask God, that's the context, continuing to ask God for more understanding. That's why he asked for more understanding. He says, I love this. I need to know more. I need to understand it better. I need to see how this what this says about you, Lord, but also says about what what you've provided for me and my help in the situation that I'm in. We're supposed to hide it in our hearts. We're supposed to be misers. And one thing where it says, do not covet, you can't covet the scriptures too much. You, You keep loving. You keep miserly appreciating it. It's one of the most important things that servants of God can do when they're living in the dark. When they're living in a culture that is full of darkness all around. We value the light because it's like a piece of gold, multiplied pieces of gold, mounds of gold. And it's ours. It's all ours to enjoy, to protect, to watch over. So we are supposed to love his commandments above gold, even above fine gold. That leads us to the final example of zeal for God and for his word from, his, from this stanza, verse 128. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So our last point is this. The love God's servants have for his honor and for his word. Calls them to have a holy hatred for false ways that are presented as if they are true. So the psalmist further describes his love for God's word when he says, "Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything." I mean, you can just almost you can almost like it just visualize a miser with his gold. I esteem every piece. It's all important. They are God's precious gems. That's, and there's really a couple of things here that tells about why, how, why they're so important. First off, they are God's precepts. They are your precepts. They're yours. That's why I esteem them. And he also, another reason to esteem them, because they concern everything. You say, well, the Bible talks about everything but this. But what? If you think it doesn't apply to something, it's because we don't understand it like we should. The scripture speaks to everything. Everything. That's why he said he esteems it, because it concerns everything. There's nothing left out. Think about just generally speaking. Obviously, they speak much of salvation and what all is involved there. We could say a lot about that. They speak of temptation they speak of trials. The scriptures speak of priorities. They speak of purpose. They speak to us as men. They speak to us as women. They speak to us as children. They speak to us as parents. Instructions to children, instructions to parents, instructions to husbands, instructions to wives, instructions to grandparents, Instructions to civil magistrates. Instructions to citizens. Instructions to employers. Instructions to employees. I mean, it's full. It speaks to everything. Okay, back to Middle Earth. The dwarves end up employing Bilbo Baggins, a hobbit, to help them get their treasure back from smog, the dragon. So when they find the dragon, able to get in to find a a map to get into the secret passageway where his lair is and uh, the mounds of stolen treasure that he's hoarding. Bilbo goes in, He uses the magic ring that he's found, which makes him invisible. While the dragon is sleeping, just sleeping there amongst all of his wealth, Bilbo takes, it's it's described as one two-handled cup. He takes it. Dragon is sleeping. He wakes up almost immediately, and almost immediately he knows something's missing. (laughs) You've got mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of gold and silver and jewels. One thing is gone, and you know it immediately. He ends up flying into a rage because of that because one two-handled cup was taken. That's what misers do. Every single piece is valuable. You can't lose a single one. As believers, when we see people taking verses from God's holy word and dismissing them, misusing them, giving a false interpretation or an untrue interpretation of what they actually say, as misers for his word, we have anger. Somebody's messed with the treasure. Even one piece, they're messing with it. They're taking it away. They can't do that. So in other words, the way he says it here, we hate every false way with a holy, God-exalting, Hatred. But we not only hate it in others, we hate it in ourselves too. That's why we regularly pray, and the psalmist again models this for us. Regularly pray, God, give me more understanding of your word. I know there's all kinds of issues in my life where I don't understand right, where I'm not being consistent in the way I live. Continue to give me the understanding I need because I don't want to be guilty of one of these false ways. And we know that once we are his servants, his covenant servants, he will answer our prayers and help us to grow in our own integrity. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We do thank you for what a treasure it is to us. Lord, help us to see how valuable it is. just As I begin to think about putting myself in the position of a dragon who loved all of his, every piece. I think I, my love for your word isn't that strong. It needs to be stronger. Lord, I ask for each of us that you would give us a miserly love for every gold nugget of your word. Help us to see how vital it is and help us to see how important it is to us as your servants who are living in a place, a time when we really need help. And you've given us the help. Help us to see it. Continue to help us grow in our own understanding of these things and apply them to our lives. We all need that kind of help. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're not his servant, and you don't have access to the treasure, really, because you won't understand it. But you can. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I realize that I don't measure up. I try to figure things out on my own. I don't trust you. I trust myself, and that really hasn't worked very well. So I recognize that I'm a sinner, but I thank you so much that Jesus Christ came into this world to pay the price for sinners, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make it on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is the name of